0: I had found Muscle Cars magazine on a newsstand and it needed a copy editor. I mean, it was just, it was a really hard read because the writing was so bad. Sorry guys. I know some of you are still my friends. So my first role was literally being the only person who edited any of the content of the magazines that we were doing. And, And like I said, we were doing four magazines at the time and over the first year I was there, we added three more. So I was editing all the content for 52 issues a year and teaching my staff writers how to write.
1: Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen, and be inspired, and please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am so happy to welcome Sue Elliott to the My Fourth Act podcast. Sue is a consummate publishing pro. Over the last 25 years, Sue launched more than a dozen publications from scratch, our publication range includes Law of Attraction, a personal growth magazine that you may have seen at your local Whole Foods store, as well as Overhaaland, the magazine, I love to say that, which took fans of the Discovery Channel TV show behind the scenes and helped them learn how to build the cars they love. Sue has also served as editor-in-chief for countless other publications. Over a thousand of our articles have been placed in outlets such as the Los Angeles Times, Parade Magazine, AAA, The New York Post, Napa Sonoma Magazine, Mind Body Green, and so many more outlets. Now, somewhere along the way, Sue came to understand that other beings and entities were really the ones in charge. She calls them her angels. And she took this step of publicly coming out of the spiritual closet as an angel coach. Please welcome Angel Coach. Sue Elliott, hello.
0: Hello, Achim.
1: <laughs> I am so looking forward to this conversation and especially that I have many guests who go from one act to another, but yours in terms of your public persona is a pretty radical change that I assume took some leaps of courage. We'll get there in a moment. Before we start, when you were a young girl, teenager growing up and and if anybody asked you what, do you, what do you want to do with your life? What were you thinking about?
0: I love this question because I had never really looked back at this. So I realized that I was very creative as a child. Yeah, I remember my earliest drawings were uh, designing clothing because mm-hmm. my, my mom's parents had a clothing store in Beverly Hills, a ladies clothing store. Uh-huh. So I was aware of fashion when I was a little girl. I started writing poetry when I was seven. I took so many art classes and writing classes. And then I got into dance and my dad had gone to New York high school of music and art Mm -hmm. and very strongly pushed me away from art. Art was not a way to make a living. So My parents actually encouraged me to study business in college, but lucky for me, when I got to Cornell, I discovered there was no business program undergraduate, (laughs) so so I wound up being an English major and essentially majored in poetry.
1: That was the angels at work already back then, right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, When you mentioned clothing store, Beverly Hills, you know, we all have immediate associations of that world. Did you feel and sometimes when when parents have a store, there's a pressure to to move into the family business. Do you have that pressure? Like, were you supposed to do what mom and dad did?
0: No. So my parents were never involved in the store. It was my mom's parents who had started it and they sold it when I was very young, like still in elementary school. So there was no pressure along those lines. My dad had gas stations when I was growing up, which is how I got into cars, because oh. from the youngest age, I was also really aware of cars and fell in love with my first car when I was three years old. The girl across the street got a Mustang, and I just loved that car. So growing up in LA, also in the San Fernando Valley, I was involved in the cruising scene, You know, cruising Van Nuys Boulevard, cruising Westwood near UCLA with my girlfriend so we could meet college boys when we were in high school. So cars were a big part of my life too. It was the the two different sides, right The sort of masculine stuff and the feminine yeah. stuff very active
1: and since I just got back from four days in California, you know, I have all these associations of the lifestyle you describe, obviously a few decades back. how How does one go from studying English at Cornell? Actually, working in the publishing? Was that your first job? Did you stumble into publishing? Was it intentional? How did you land in that world?
0: It was surprisingly natural. I was on my high school newspaper staff. Uh And then in college, again, you know, angel guidance, right? I was looking for some sort of work to do. And I stumbled into a, a job editing stuff for the Career Center at Cornell and became friends with the director of the Career Center. And I knew I didn't want to go on to law school, which was kind of a logical thing to do with an English degree at the time anyway. Mm -hmm. And I knew I loved the newspaper. So the summer before my senior year, I got a couple internships in publishing, one with a book publishing company in LA and another one simultaneously with a magazine publishing company. And I discovered that books took a year to come out in print, which to a 21 year old was forever. So magazine publishing was super natural. As soon as I graduated, I got a temporary job. And then about a month later, I got a full-time job and it just felt effortless moving in that direction.
1: I know that work a little bit, that, that world a little bit. And, and, and as you know, I'm, I'm a published writer, so traditionally published. And so I have publishing house of agents and all those things. And in my mind, there's a very, that can be a very sexy part of that work. And that can be a part of the work that's just hard and a grind. And both can coexist, I'm sure, often on the same day. But if you were to give our listeners maybe a snapshot of an early moment in your publishing life where you were involved with a project, you went, yeah, this is why I love this. This is just amazing that I, soon get to do this. What comes to mind?
0: When I... So my first couple publishing jobs were business magazines. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I wasn't really interested in business. As you know, I became very interested later in life. But right out of college, I was kind of at the other end of the spectrum. I sent out a bunch of resumes and wound up getting offered a job with just two years of experience as managing editor of four car magazines because the editor-in-chief of all the magazines had been embezzling from the company. And the current managing editor was going through his desk looking for more evidence of wrongdoing and found my resume. And the managing editor had given notice and was looking to replace himself. And he was kind of a college snob. And when he saw that I went to Cornell, he was like, oh, you should hire this girl. So I literally, on the day that I was planning to move back to California and try as a freelance writer to work on car magazines, I got a call to go interview at this publishing company in New Jersey to become the managing editor for magazines. So I had this huge leap upward in my career and got to experience a passion industry because the magazines we were doing were high-performance Pontiac, high-performance Mopar, that about Corvettes and muscle cars. So total enthusiast, hands-on how-to magazines. And I got to learn how everything in the car worked. And I just love that stuff. I got to go tour factories, which I love seeing how things are made. And I love being around people who are super passionate about what they do.
1: What a cool story. Now, the other thought I have, however, like if I had to pick like the most favorite thing I read every week, it's on Saturdays. It's in the Wall Street Journal- It's the car column written by Dan Neal, who is a ridiculously good writer. But I would imagine when you're an editor of a magazine like this, some writers give you good writing and some you go like, crap, I have to publish this, but this is not in good shape. Like, how did you handle suddenly being managing editor, being boss, who is responsible for the editorial quality of what you're putting out?
0: That was it's actually how I wound up there. So I had found muscle cars magazine on a newsstand and it needed a copy editor. I mean, it was just, it was a really hard read because it, the writing was so bad. No. All right, guys. I know some of you are still my friends. <laughs> So my first role was literally being the only person who edited any of the content of the magazines that we were doing. And and like I said, we were doing four magazines at the time. And over the first year I was there, we added three more. So I was editing all the content for 52 issues a year and teaching my staff writers how to write. And that made my life so much better. And I became a really collaborative editor. In the beginning, I was that person who rewrote somebody's article and published it without even running it by them. You know, I was 22 years old. I I was arrogant like many people in their early 20s are, uh, especially coming out of an Ivy League school, right? I know so much. And then I became, by the time I was doing the personal growth magazine in the, when was that? Like we finished about 10 years ago. It was much more drawing out the story from the person. So I would get the article I would rearrange things into a a, a nice flow and then I would add in questions to draw out more nuance, more depth, more breadth if needed, just to to really bring that person's flavor through.
1: Since you already just preluded Law of Attraction magazine, which is actually, I met you through that magazine, which was beautiful. It featured all of the great luminaries at the time and. The personal growth space in I would say United States, but the world. And they were in there, and this was your baby. You created this magazine. Nobody said, Hey, you have to do this. No, you begged a publisher to publish it. So can you just walk us through the story from the young woman who was editing, managing editing muscle cars to the more mature professional who said, I want to launch. Law of Attraction magazine, and I'm going to fight to get this thing published.
0: (laughs) Thank you for asking. It felt surprisingly natural at the time. Uh I did car magazines for a really long time, and I even was a spokesperson for the automotive aftermarket for a while. Uh And then I got unmarried and I moved up to the Napa Valley. So my whole life, I was a foodie from the youngest age and and I started drinking wine when I was maybe 10 years old. It was just something that we did in, in our house. You know, if my parents opened a bottle, I got a glass too. So when I left my marriage and I could live anywhere, I moved up to the Napa Valley and I immediately started writing about restaurants and wineries locally for the local mm-hmm. paper. And then I started writing for you know other magazines and publications about food and wine. And so I was always following my passions. I was passionate about cars, but after a while, you know, after 25 years of doing that, I felt like I had done that. And so I moved into this next phase. And then the head of business development for the newsstand and I got connected. I love these stories, right? Being in the right place at the right time. This is what I actually coach people to do now. I'm standing in the taxi line in Las Vegas, waiting to go to the SEMA show, which is the big automotive aftermarket trade show. It's one of the three biggest trade shows in Las Vegas every year. So I'm standing in this massive taxi line that winds around like a Disneyland line, you know, back and forth and back and forth. And I wind up next to Jerry Pitt, this guy that I've known for years. And he says, Sue Elliott, you're the person we need. Because they had a deal brewing with a celebrity chef who was also a car collector. And there was nobody in the universe who wrote about food and (laughs) wine and muscle
1: cars,
0: (laughs) except me. So he was like, we need you. And so I started talking to the head of business development for the newsstand who was working on putting together this deal with the celebrity chef. And that never happened. But meanwhile, he was dying to do food magazines. So I, instead of pitching stories to food and wine magazine or or whatever i just launched a food magazine of my own and at the time we didn't have any budget for a, a test kitchen so i loved restaurants i loved chefs and so we made a magazine about chef recipes so they were already tried and true we didn't have to test them ourselves and So we did a bunch of one-shot magazines for the newsstand, you know, comfort food, holiday baking, fall foods, and one called Chef that was profiles of a lot of chefs and, and excerpts from their books. And then he got carte blanche to try anything. On the newsstand. So he was doing puzzle magazines and he was doing a gun magazine and all these different things. And he said, What was that crazy thing you wanted to do? Because about it, <laughs> Once earlier, I had pitched him on doing this personal transformation magazine yeah. and I gave him a copy of Louise Hayes' movie, You Can Heal Your Life, yes. which he never watched. And he, he, without even knowing what it was about, he was like, Let's just try one. So we decided to call it Law of Attraction, which I was a little bit sorry about. I would have loved for it to be even broader, like Joyful Living or Bliss or something. And we put it out, and it sold really well. In fact, it was one of the best-selling magazines they had on the newsstand that year. So we did one the first year, and then we did two the second year, and they kept selling well. And then we did four the next year, and we were right about to do six the following year when the publishing company went through the first of three reorganizations in, in six months. And they killed more than half their magazines. So that was one of the first ones that went away. And then you and I started talking about a business magazine for C-level executives to bring personal transformation into the C-suite. And uh, that was was what I was looking at doing next.
1: A word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the My Fourth Act Mastermind Groups where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. You you mentioned the word passion before. You have a passion for muscle cars. You clearly have a passion for And I I love the expansion that used joyful living bliss, you know, the expansion of law of attraction. So if we go with the the notion of joy, even though the publisher, as far as to say, killed the magazine at some point, what was the most joyful part for you of putting that magazine out?
0: Oh, gosh, everything about it was such a joy and a practice, right? Like When I was doing the car magazines, I could be all stressed out and not worry that the readers of the car magazine were going to feel my stress when they read it. But I knew when I was doing the personal transformation magazine, that if I was stressed out, that that energy was going to go into the magazine and my readers, many of whom, many of them at least, were sensitive enough to feel that. So one of the greatest joys was that it really made me walk the talk all day, every day. Mm -hmm. And of course, you mentioned all the luminaries, the incredible people that we got to share wisdom from. It was incredible to get to talk to a lot of these people, interview them. Some were book excerpts, so I didn't get to meet Wayne Dyer in person, but I did get to choose exactly the piece of guidance from him that not only fit the mix, but that felt really potent and transformative for people.
1: Yeah. Beautiful. Now let's talk about angels, shall we? Oh yes. <laughs> I in the introduction I used the word sort of other beings or entities, because uh, to some people angel can have a religious connotation. But on the most fundamental level, if I understand this correctly, at some point you started to tune into other frequencies. And you noticed that other things were communicating with you. And I had to laugh earlier when you, I think, so, half jokingly said that this publication owner said, talked about your crazy idea. And, you know, people who communicate with angels have also been labeled as being crazy, right? Or could <laughs> be our culture has changed. But how, how did this emerge for you? Walk us into how this channel of communication opened up for you.
0: Thank you for asking that question. So I know when I was little, I used to have dreams and then the exact thing would happen the next day. And that scared me. I was maybe seven or eight years old when that was happening. And so I turned that off. So the clairvoyance went away when I was little, but the my abilities obviously were there. And I believe that we have many lifetimes, that we are eternal beings. And so I know now that I've done this work for millennia but I did not know that. As you know, an Ivy League graduate who is very much about figuring things out in my head. When I first started hearing around 2005, I literally heard you're a healer. And my response was something like, la 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 la, I can't hear you go away. (laughs) Like, I'm a normal person, leave me alone. At that point, I was still in a marriage with a very, you know, Logical, reality focused husband. I was still doing car magazines. I was very much in that normal, quote unquote, space. And yet I started to get messages for people. Somebody would say, uh, The first one I remember was a woman said, I can't afford that. And I heard like yelling, tell her never to use those words. And so I grabbed her hands and said, Please don't ever say, I can't afford that again you you can afford it you don't want to be creating that kind of lack in your life you know you are not choosing to spend your money that way but please know that you are that powerful that you're making that conscious choice it's not that you can't afford it and so messages like that started to arrive and then i was sitting with my friend in the copia center for food and wine in the napa valley when i first moved up to napa in 2007 and we were sitting with this lovely woman who was telling us how upset she was that she couldn't do needlework anymore because of her arthritis. And we're looking at her right hand and one of her fingers is curved into like a C shape
1: mm-hmm. and it won't
0: straighten anymore. And so she's talking to my friend Jody, and mostly looking at Jody. and I'm holding her hand and I'm kind of petting her hand very gently. And all of a sudden I feel this little funk and I look down and her finger is perfectly straight and the, the arthritis seems to have gone away. And Jody notices this, but the woman who's telling her story of how she can't do the things she loves to do is oblivious. So I stop because it seems like whatever I was meant to do is done. And then by the time she's done telling how she can't do what she wants to do anymore, her finger's curved again. Wow. So we walk outside and Jody says, what just happened there? And I'm like, well, apparently I learned two very important things. One, I can heal people with touch. And two, if they're not ready to receive it, they're not going to even receive it yet. So, so things unfolded like that. I would be in the middle of doing something. And all of a sudden I would say to the person, well, let's check your chakras. And then I, that person would stand up and I would see the alignment and I would realign his chakras. And I was like, I had no idea I could do that until the words came out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. So it's been this interesting expansion <laughs> into who apparently I really am.
1: i I appreciate the word expansion that you just used. When we describe to other people how we are of service to them, you know, we have to call it something. And you're choosing to use the word angel. But in my world, I know many people who call themselves healers, who call themselves mediums, who call themselves channels. So you chose angel. And I have a hunch there's a a reason why that's the language or the descriptor that works for you. Would you describe to us why angel is where you landed?
0: Well, I do have a client who about a year and a half ago said, I tell people you're my angel coach. And it was a very big aha moment for me because up until then, I've been doing the coaching work for about 14 years now. I was doing it in parallel actually with the magazine work for a long time and I never knew how to describe what I do because it's it's this unique combination of life and business coaching and energy healing and delivering guidance from the angels. Yeah. And so when she said, I tell people, you're my angel coach, it was this huge light bulb moment. And as soon as I started using those words, people leaned in in interest. It felt very harmonious in my system. And that is really the most important thing I find yeah. That that when there's disharmony, questioning, hesitance in our system, others read it and they say, no, thank you. And the minute I had that level of clarity and harmony in my system, clients started showing up left and right. So I knew it was the quote unquote, right words to describe it. But also my experience of it is this very loving, Mm -hmm. nurturing, gentle energy. So when we dissolve people's subconscious programming or hidden limits or reset the trauma triggers in their system or do this angel coaching work it's always very gentle very honoring of the person very kind with this sweetness and a sense of humor i find that the angels love to surprise and delight us and so it feels like angels to me it doesn't feel like spirit guides it doesn't feel you know, I could say the divine, but a lot of people have a lot of stuff around God and, yeah. you know, the angry judgmental guy in the sky. So angels feels the most resonant for me. Yeah.
1: It makes so much sense to me. Like, I use the word angels all the time, literally, to describe the people that have, in my case, a, as a successful <laughs> executive coach who's had an international career there are four or five individuals whose belief in me changed the trajectory of my life. And they were my angels. They introduced me to people. I didn't have to prove myself to them. They opened doors for me. And so they, they were very tangible angels. And I just, in L.A., I had dinner with a person who I would describe that way. But I also, when you use the word angel coach, To me, it means you bring angels into the conversation and you embody being an angel for others, correct?
0: Mm, Thank you. Many of my clients do say you're my angel and that it touches me so deeply when they say that.
1: Now, you said I've been doing this for 14 years or so on the side. When somebody used the word angel coach, you went, that that feels right, that makes sense. I use it in the introduction the word coming out of the spiritual closet because, I'm you know, thinking about your previous husband, you know, more logical things to go. Wow, she is way too friggin' woo woo for me. Like, where is she coming from? You know, she, you know, she had this traditional publishing career. That sounds great, but I don't know about all of this angels. How did you reconcile within yourself? I mean, you were coming out as an angel coach and owning that part of you that might seem a little hard for some people to embrace.
0: It's been a journey, and you've been (laughs) a big part of that journey. I know you've seen so much of this. Part of the problem, quote unquote, around it was when Law of Attraction magazine ceased publishing. And I was looking to bring this work to C-suite leaders. The reason I was doing that is because I was being strongly guided to bring this work to business leaders, to smooth the transition from the old reality that we're all well aware of, that's based on fear and manipulation and control and greed and scarcity consciousness into this new reality that's being birthed now that's based on love and abundance consciousness and cooperation and collaboration and kindness and compassion. And I was shown that business was a way to do that because it affected so many people because people spend so much of their day at work. So if I could work with a company that has 20,000 people and affect change at the top, it could have huge ripple effects. And I did not believe that those people were ready for the woo-woo messages that were totally fine with my clients who are coaches and healers and the readers of Law of Attraction magazine. But I felt like I was moving into a space where that was not really welcome. And I had to sort of prove my credibility as an executive coach. And now looking back, I can see And you know, the the huge aha that happened maybe three months ago, where I went, Oh, right, of course, this is what sets me apart from every executive coach on the planet. These are my superpowers. Yes, for those of you who are resonant with this, and why would I try and work with those of you who are not, you know, bringing divine guidance into your business every day might actually help if that's something that matters to you. I'm the coach for you.
1: Part of abundance thinking, if I use your language, is that there are There are enough people in the universe who resonate with the word angel and those are the people you can support and you don't need to support everybody, right? Because not everybody is a right partner for everybody else. So you're also, you know, this podcast is called My Fourth Act and you and your life partner, literally, I mean, we're recording this on the day that you just just made an offer on, on a huge 32 acre piece of land outside of Asheville, North Carolina, but most of your life has been identified. Listeners will know this with Southern California. Uh, so this is a big move. It's, it's literally to a different part of the world after several decades in Southern California and one sort of lifestyle. What prompted you to want to make that big lifestyle change?
0: Oh, so many things. I did live in the Napa Valley for five years up in Northern California. And that was my idea of heaven. And the only reason I left is my father made his transition. And my mom was actually, it turns out in the last stage of grief, which was depression comes Mm -hmm. before acceptance. So if you look at the Elizabeth Kubler, -Ross, Ross stages of grieving. And so I moved down to Orange County, California to be near my mom. It was her happy place. She loves being here, you know, near the harbor, near the ocean. She can see the ocean from her home. And it never felt like home to me. It always felt very competitive. And, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, I was in coastal Orange County, which is very affluent, lots of plastic surgery, lots of, you know, people buying a basic house there costs a million, million and a half. Right. So, it never felt harmonious. I loved the passion of the Napa Valley, the, the people who are passionate about food and wine and art, and it's agricultural. And I lived in a very small town that had only 3,000 people in it. And I loved that. So I was yearning for that again. Mm-hmm. And Paul, my partner, had been looking at the fires and the smoke. And we had gone to visit his, one of his sons outside Denver and the smoke was there from California and from wow. Arizona fires. And so we started looking at like, where is the air quality good? Where is the weather good? Where is the where is the real community where you can know your neighbors and help each other? And it brought us to the Blue Ridge Mountains. And Asheville had always been on my radar as wow. it must be a really special place because there's a huge spiritual community there and so many art galleries in this town of under. Hundred thousand people. There were like thirty art galleries, and I thought, hmm. So we came out to look in April and loved it out here in Western North Carolina, and and moved here two weeks ago.
1: <laughs> Congratulations! On Thank the you. Roof. I know the backstory of this, but I, I think for our listeners, all of us who are at a certain age, you know, we make a lot of life decisions around our elders, the parents. Taking care of them, being responsible for them. Uh, And in my mind, you made a very radical choice by you were, you know, in coastal California, south of LA, to be close to your mom. And at some point you said, Paul and I will move anyway. How did you make that okay for yourself to say, no, mom will be fine, we'll be happier in. North Carolina, and that will be part of our family moving forward.
0: It was, as you know, probably the hardest decision I've ever made to move away from my mom, who's 89 years old. She's also healthy, and she has the most active social life of anyone I know. She's very (laughs) vibrant, so it's not like she needed us, and she never wanted us to be her caregivers, you know, she set aside money for in-home care. She never had any intention of living with us or us living with her. So there was that, right, that made it a little easier. But honestly, the conversation we had around this in the My Fourth Act mastermind group that I recently was in with you, that helped a lot. People shared a variety of perspectives that it might even help her be more independent and more healthy and more vibrant that it might help her live a longer life by being less dependent on us. That helped. And she's healthy. God willing, she'll live another 10, 15 years. And we couldn't wait. I couldn't ask my partner who's 65 to wait till he's 80 to do the things that he's super passionate about. We're super excited about building a greenhouse in a very new way and having a permaculture food forest inside that greenhouse. And he wants to test new technologies. He's he's a scientist. And so he's excited about the experiments that he can do here that would not have been easy to do back there. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, we had to say, we'll come back regularly and yep. spend quality time with mom. And we're going to go where we're being called to. And on the work front, I was really feeling the need to live in a more harmonious environment, a more energetically supportive environment, because it was so turbulent where we were living. It was harder for me to maintain my potency and and my center, and I was less of service than I can be here.
1: So, question I ask every one of my guests: You and Paul are clearly stepping into a another act in your lives it's intentional i'm speaking to you after you've just been there for two weeks are there any other little hopes dreams aspirations where you go these are some things i would love to create here these are some things i would like to explore and i'm not saying they have to be at all it's it's fine to not have those but is there anything like that in your mind sue oh so much
0: so <laughs> much <laughs> So I know that one of the offerings I'm going to start doing now that I'm here is one-on-one retreats where people come and stay on this magical land with us. And we can do deep dive work and clear out so much of of the programming and the emotional debris in somebody's system, which can be done much more easily in this really nourishing natural space. Um, I'm looking at retreat centers around here. I'm, I'm excited to Explore the possibilities of larger retreats on land that's really beautiful. And simultaneously, I'm doing the work that I do with people who are change makers, you know, who are changing education and food and farming and impact investing and all these sort of archetypal clients who are doing different kinds of work. And then one of my most beloved clients had a tragedy last month in her life where her son murdered her ex-husband, his father, Mm -hmm. and then tried to break into a neighbor's house uh, who he knew was a Marine and the Marine shot and killed him. So in one night, she lost her ex-husband and her son. As we've been helping her with this, it's emerged that one of the things for me to do next and that may involve the land here as a healing space also is creating a group program I'm getting choked up just thinking about it. Creating a group program for women whose child has died in a shameful way, whether that was committing a crime or committing suicide or anything else that really brings up a lot of societal programming that says, you know, what did you do to that poor child that caused them to do whatever it is they did? Or this, we're calling it forbidden grief because, for example, if there's another sibling, you know, how do you go on with life? How do you mourn this person who some people will say is not worth mourning if they were committing a heinous act? It's an opportunity to work with these beautiful women who can't repay a debt to society that they didn't create in the first place. So it feels very big and very potent and very much part of. Bringing the divine feminine back on the planet very much a part of moving us into this compassion-based and unconditional love-based reality.
1: So I listen to you, and I really, what really resonates with me is your. I keep hearing the back to nature part, the healing part of nature, and the, the merging. In, in my life, it's called sort of the merging of work and life in a space where all of that is possible. And in a healthy way, with boundaries, of course, but as a playground where beautiful things can be done, and and you have just stepped into it, so I am thrilled that we got to speak about this at at the start of this next journey in your life. So, final question: if you if you were to whisper some advice to young Sue about, so life guides, not to change anything that happened in your life, but just from from the place of being a an elder, and you know I mean that in a very positive way, an elder who's had a chance to engage with ridiculously brilliant people and is connected to angels, what would you want her to know about life that maybe you didn't know back then, Sue?
0: So I always knew I was different No, I was always more sensitive. I didn't fit in. But what I would whisper to her is embrace that and let go of the resistance to the others being different from you. So I remember really struggling with others being not like me more than struggling with me being me. So if I could lean into the divine perfection of all of that, it would have removed so much grief and turbulence and trying to find my tribe, trying to find where I did fit in, because I didn't come here in this lifetime to fit in. I came here in this lifetime to lead change, but, yeah. but young Sue didn't understand that.
1: If anybody is listening to us and is going, oh, I want to learn more about Sue. I, I love what she talked about. Where would you like to direct them to?
0: I would love for them to come to myangelcoach.com. And there's I have a blog on there. I have information on working with me personally or if you're a change maker and pretty soon we'll be putting up information about the Forbidden Grief program. But reach out to me if that calls to you please or if you know somebody who's really struggling and would benefit. They're welcome to email me. We'll we'll let them know as soon as it launches.
1: Thank you Sue for this conversation. I am just Thrilled about this next phase you stepped into. It's just inspiring. So travel well.
0: Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity.
1: Bye bye for now. Bye. Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review, and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.